From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Women at Work on Business Radio. Here is your host, Laura Zarrow. Welcome to Women at Work and our ongoing conversation about how we can help get more women to join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Senior Director of Wharton People Analytics, for our conversation today about how we can help our girls, and perhaps ourselves, learn to step up, stand out, and embrace our missteps along the way, Um, not just as values on their own, but critical components to helping us find our own voices and having the courage to use them well. As women, we are, unfortunately, way too familiar with the behaviors that we were taught mattered, uh, performing well, pleasing others, and fitting in at all costs. We're also, unfortunately, quite familiar with the darker side of girlhood, the subtle and often cruel social dynamics that punish those who break those rules and wind up hurting and limiting us in enduring and dangerous ways. Today's guest is the insightful and innovative Rachel Simmons. She has delved deeply into understanding these traits, these patterns, and she brings a remarkable kind of compassion and understanding to the emotional experience of girls as they move from adolescence into adulthood. Furthermore, she has recommendations, really insightful, well-articulated recommendations, about how we can learn to help our girls learn to thrive personally, fail well, and do all of this as part of learning how to maximize their positive impact on the world around us. Our phones are open at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. If you want to share your story of how you broke the curse of the good girl, or if you'd like to ask Rachel a question about how to help the girls in your immediate world navigate this tricky terrain, we'd love to hear from you. So please give us a call. Once again, that's 1-844-WHARTON, 844 And if you are like Julian Cinnaminson, who can't listen out loud to the radio and call in, but you're able to send us an email, we would love to hear from you. You can write to businessradio at SiriusXM.com, and Patty will get your email and bring it in, which also gives me a chance to, you know, make her get up, come into the booth. We can have a warm hello. Um, But no matter how you want to send us your question, we're happy to answer it um, and have you join in on the discussion. So today's guest, uh, some of you may know Rachel Simmons as the author of the New York Times bestsellers, The Curse of the Good Girl, Raising Authentic Girls with Courage and Confidence, and Odd Girl Out, The Hidden Culture of Aggression in Girls. Rachel is also the co-founder and research director of Girls Leadership. She's the Girls Research Scholar in Residence at the Hewitt School in New York, and she's the Leadership Development Specialist at the Wordle Center for Work and Life at Smith College, where she's created and teaches a a course for girls on how to actually fail well and manage the pressures that they self-inflict. She works to empower young women to be more authentic, assertive, and self-aware, and she is also, without a doubt, the person I'd most like to be whispering in my ear on a daily basis as I parent my 15-year-old. So I am particularly grateful to have her with us today. So with that, Rachel, welcome to Women at Work. Thanks, Laura. So um, you've been working on how to help empower young women for a number of years now. And when I first became aware of your work, maybe it was the context in which I learned about it, but it was focusing really on young girls. And now you're working at Smith College helping young women. What started this work and how did it grow over time? Well, um, I think like many things that we get interested in, there's a personal origin or, um, you know, (laughs) precipitating event. And I think I had a lot of experiences in girlhood that I never really made sense of, whether it was being excluded by my female friends and just feeling haunted by that, or whether it was being too loud or too funny or too much as a girl and, and experiencing feeling marginalized for that. So I think I had a lot of unresolved questions about the ways in which I seem to break some of the rules as a girl or just the rites of passage of girlhood that are so challenging. And then as I became an adult, it was really clear that very few people had studied these questions, um, which created an opening for me to start doing it. So one of the things that I found so valuable about your work is you articulated and gave us a framework for understanding this concept of the good girl and why it's not as positive a thing as um, we were led to believe growing up. Exactly. I mean, we, of course, we want our daughters and I have one now myself. Congratulations. Um, God help me, right? (laughs) When you're the girl expert, then you have a daughter, you're in trouble. But um, in any event, you know, we all want our daughters to be quote-unquote good girls, but what we don't want is for them to be so nice 
and so good that they don't know how to say no or to be so kind to others that they never ask themselves, what do I want or what do I feel? And so the curse of the good girl is really a kind of distortion of some of those traits that we want our daughters to have, but which I think the culture sort of overcorrects for um, to the point where girls lose themselves and it becomes hard for them to advocate for themselves. And of course, we know, and you know very well, that that can cost them their confidence, um, not just as girls, but as women. Yes. And it, it the attributes that you're talking about, about the way it constrains us, limits both our imagination and our courage. It does. And I think one of the things we have to keep in mind, not just as parents, but as educators, too, is that so much of what we see women struggling with in the workplace originates in girlhood. And I I always tell whether it's my college students or fifth grade girls, I say to them, you know, every time you have a conflict with a friend where you don't stand up for yourself, and let's take even a younger girl, a second grade girl who wants to get on the swings, but, you know, she can't summon the courage to say, hey, listen, it's my turn and you're hogging them. Um, those are all leadership opportunities. That's all. Those are all the ways that girls learn to flex those muscles of assertiveness. Same thing in college. I say to my students, listen, if you've got a roommate who keeps the door open, uh, sorry, the window open in February and it's 20 degrees in your room and you can't ask her to close it, you know, you're, that's an opportunity missed to flex that muscle that you'll use for the rest of your life. It's interesting that you uh, align it with a leadership muscle, which it is, but it also seems like an important form of self-advocacy and self-protection. Protection. It is, and I think um, you're absolutely right. And and I, I that's I think one of the great opportunities we have as parents of girls to understand that there's a lot of alignment between the self advocacy opportunities that girls have and the potential that they can achieve later on in life when they decide what they're passionate about as as workers. Um, because so much of that is really the same thing; they overlap so much. So what's playing out? I mean. I, I see my daughter and her friends navigating social things, and there's I feel like there's what I see, and then there's my memory of what I was going through at her age. And it seems like I'm not at all seeing what's really happening below the surface. Um, so funny that you should say that, because um, I think that so many of us as women relive in painful ways our own unresolved experiences. And I do think that because we didn't have you know, books or people talking to us about what was happening when we were excluded or what was happening in the drive for popularity. You know, my generation, we didn't have that. A lot of it is unresolved. And as parents, we kind of relive it because we haven't resolved it. And so it is very important to remember that we are different from our daughters. It's it's also (laughs) hard as that may be. I know, as she reminds me on a regular basis. I'm I'm sure (laughs) as she becomes more articulate, no doubt. Yes. Um, And also just to remember... um, and I really feel this in my own parenting, that distress and challenge in your own house, under your own roof, that is when your daughter's with you experiencing that, that's not a bad thing. Because, you know, what we, one of the reasons I work with college women so much is, um, as I think you, you well know, we're really seeing a resilience crisis mm-hmm. in our adolescents in this country across the board. And so what's happening is a lot of kids are being spared from those challenges that make, that give us hives as parents. <laughs> Um, And they go to college, and it's the first time that they may have encountered something, and a lot of them come apart. So that's a kind of a long-winded way of saying that as we watch our daughters struggle, that's not always a bad thing if we can keep our wits about us and help make it a learning experience for them. Now, when you just noted that um, they're spared from distress and challenge, are you talking about the ways that... As parents, we try and buffer their worlds and make everything a positive experience and often over-intervene? Or is that about letting them see us sort out conflict in our own relationships? I think it's probably the, the former. I mean, okay. I, think, I think part of what's going on is that as parents, we are under an enormous amount of pressure to be perfect, right? To, to give our children the organic food and the enrichment experiences <laughs> and... Um, you know, all the appropriate uh, experiences that create a, a perfect child with excellent character. But I think the upshot of that is that many of us walk around feeling like we're not doing a good enough job and that we are not adequate enough parents. We feel anxious. We feel worried. So I want to be clear that, you know, in part, I think one of what's happening with parents is that we spare our kids from distress, not to make them feel better, but to make us feel better. Well, it sounds like then as mom, as mothers, and I curious the degree to which fathers 
suffer from this, but that it's just we've just moved from being good girls to being good moms. Well, yes, we have. And uh, this is where we should crack open the bottle of wine, actually. <laughs> <laughs> um, how long do you have? Yeah, I do. I mean, I, so I've done this exercise. I talk about this in The Curse of the Good Girl. Um, I used to lead these parent-daughter weekends, which were such a pleasure. And what, we, what I would do is I would take the moms. They were almost, we would always have like a stray dad, but usually it was moms. And I would take them into a room and I'd say, okay, make a list of all the qualities that you want your daughter to have. Like in the best of worlds, what's your dream? And they would say things like, I want her to be honest. I want her to volunteer. I want her to be um, self-aware. I want her to speak up. Then I say to them, okay, let's make a list of what the culture expects of the perfect mother. And there's just this frozen silence. Because what they realize is that the terms of being that perfect mom often contradict with what they want for their daughters. Because being the perfect mom is often putting everyone else's needs ahead of you. Mm -hmm. It's not living a life of balance. It's not necessarily speaking up. And so I do think that mothers, we as moms have to work out, as you point out, the sort of curse of the good mom, this tension before we can model what we really want to model for our daughters. Absolutely. By the way, you're listening to Women at Work on Business Radio on Sirius XM 111. I'm your host, Laura Zarin. I'm talking with Rachel Simmons, who's the author of Odd Girl Out and the Leadership Development Specialist at the Wordle Center for Work and Life at Smith College, amongst other things. There's a long list of what she's accomplished and what she does. Um, but if you're a mother out there and you can relate to what we're talking about, give us a call. We would love to hear from you. You can reach us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's one 844 942-7866. You know, Rachel, when you said just a moment ago, you know, we we want them to be perfect with excellent character. There's no such thing as perfect. Excellent is a high bar. How much of that is about conformity and how much of that is about being the best version of themselves? That's a great question. I mean, I think it depends what age we're talking about because I think when a child hits adolescence, the drive to fit in and not be different becomes paramount to them. And so some of this is, is developmental. Some of this is part of being an adolescent um, and that just intense fear. This is, of course, the moment where your parent starts to become the most embarrassing thing in the entire <laughs> world. Like, oh, my God. Actually, I always say, I always say to parents and to moms in particular, embarrass your daughters because it's actually great training for them. Because usually, <laughs> usually the things that most embarrass our daughters around that age as they approach adolescence are moments when we deviate from that good girl behavior, right? We like sing in the car or we, you know, <laughs> ask for what we need. And that's just like horrific for girls, right? And so yes. but you've got to do that to model that for them. So, you know, please, everyone should liberally embarrass their, their children. Um, so, you know, I do think some of it is also about being the best in the class because girls are socialized to worry about what other people think to be caregivers mm -hmm. and so they from a very early age we, we know from research they are um, taught to be attuned to feedback from other people and so what it means when a girl becomes sort of this perfectionist success-seeking individual is that she's getting more and more of that feedback which she may have been taught to seek at a very young age so I do think it's both when along with that bottle of wine we need to crack and the way that these things we explore are often therapy for ourselves um, when I was looking at the chart that was in the curse of the good girl about the good girl or the odd girl out and I have to say I related to it because while I was a good student and a nice person I like to believe I also was an artist and I was an activist and I was dressing all in black and wearing weird clothes and I was breaking a lot of those rules and when I, it enabled me to look back and understand a little bit the social dynamic I experienced, particularly in junior high school and high school. But then on the other hand, I was thinking about how it related to what you said before about you, about being too much, being too big, but that those were traits hopefully we've grown into and that are part of who we've become. How do we help our girls um, not lose their uniqueness, if those are the things that are going to make them innovative, creative, impactful? Uh, it's a great question. I mean, first of all, I think you definitely need to post some of those photographs from your early life <laughs> onto your show's Facebook page, and I challenge you to do that. Um, <laughs> second of all, uh, I think, look, it's a lot of different factors, right? I mean, some of it is about what your, what your children see from you. And modeling, I mean, one of the reasons I would call myself a reluctant parenting expert is because I actually think that the most important work we can do as a parent is, 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 our, is the work on ourselves. Mm -hmm. So we have to model a willingness to 
be different in whatever way that looks like. And that's always going to be the most important school your child <laughs> attends in terms of learning um, to get that permission to be different. I also think we have to be thoughtful about the environments we're putting our kids into. Um, you know, if, if we're putting our kids into highly selective um, elite environments where you're really not supposed to deviate from the norm, it's, it's hard to imagine that that kid's going to feel comfort with taking a risk and being different. So I think that's part of it, too. Um, I, I believe that mentors are key, whether it's an older babysitter or a relative or a family friend who's doing something different. That's really critical. Um, and finally, I would say just cultivating your child's sense of purpose. And this is becoming an increasingly important area of research and education with, with young people today, giving them a sense that they can be part of something bigger than themselves. That will motivate them to, to kind of challenge the norm and be different. The way that you talk about the school setting, I think, is particularly potent. I'm seeing, both as my daughter gets older, but also I've worked with high school and college-age students for decades now, and um, it seems like there's a growing focus on performance grades, numbers, the competitiveness between students. I mean, it was embedded in where I grew up, but it um, seems to have a perniciousness that is compelling kids to drive themselves in a way that's physically unhealthy and emotionally unhealthy. I think that's right. I mean, we it's really um, depressing, for lack of a better word, to read the data about the lack or the decline of emotional wellness in adolescence. And we're not, I want to be clear, we're not just talking about like rich, privileged kids. We're talking about, if you look at surveys of 150,000 college freshmen in the United States, a gradual decline in the number of students that feel emotionally well. And I think what we're seeing, to your point, is this intense emphasis on performance, that I have to look to others as perfect as I can be. And of course, what happens? They start disconnecting from what do they actually want to learn, what really makes them curious. Um, they're getting less sleep. They're socializing less. So their most important relationships. And, and like I think anybody parenting adolescents knows they want to hang out with their friends, right? That's, right, I they, did too. Right, like that's what, I mean, it, you know, that's what you do. And we know that um, adolescents are spending less and less time socializing because they feel that they must be busy all the time. So this um, kind of achievement drive is really, has really wound up a mental health crisis. And we know this from uh, the average wait time to be seen by a mental health counselor at a college campus is, is just insane. Um, and so, so college campuses are struggling with this. Mm -hmm. High schools are struggling with it. And, um, and there's a lot of emptiness in these kids. Uh, and it's, it's actually pretty devastating. Um, I often, I call it the college application industrial complex. And I, I like to uh, <laughs> say I'm actively fighting it. And it's it's a fight that I would uh, that I put alongside the wedding industrial complex, and you know both of them does need to be remedied in some way. Yeah. Um, so, but part of what you're talking about here, there's performance pressure, there's pressure to adhere and conform. Um, yet at the same time, they're not getting the socializing with friends in person. Yet they, which would help be an antidote to some of this. What they are doing though is socializing around the clock. In social, in digital ways, which is not in real time, it and it's not connected with all the senses. Absolutely, I mean, I, and I, I'm not going to be the person who attributes the decline of civilization to social media. <laughs> so let's all brace ourselves because I'm not going to be that person. I think I think we're seeing kids turn to social media because that's their form of recreation now. Mm -hmm. that, that's what they have available to them within these incredibly confining constraints. And, um, and that it's an, an instant antidote to the stress and anguish that they're feeling at any given moment. Yeah, it's, it's, a, not, it's a quick an way out. It's too strong a word. It's a distraction. It's, okay, it's a that's fair. It's, it's, yeah. it's a way to distract them. I don't think it's an antidote. I think if we were, we'd have a lot happier uh, kids out there. And so, so I think that, that social media use is a symptom, but it's not the problem. And I think one of the problems we have right now is that we've got a lot of people very quick uh, to implicate social media. And uh, like I said, it's not the problem. It's a symptom of the problem. Right. And I think it's, um, it's a symptom of the problem. And it also, in this context, is just an indication of their meeting a need, not in a way that was historically available to us. So they're not getting the benefit of the thing that they're missing. Absolutely. This is just a, a, a sort of thin consolation, um, you know, for, for what they're really longing for, which is connection. 
Um, and, and I think that's, that's very hard. And um, one of the hardest jobs of parents right now is to say, listen, do you really need that extra AP? Like, could you just stick with maybe three APs instead of five? <laughs> right. Um, and, and the kids are saying, no, I can't because I won't get into college if I don't do this and that and the other. You know, one thing it's important for parents to remember, and I think parents of, of girls and boys, though I think girls are particularly skillful at this, is that kids catastrophize. And they will tell you, hey, listen, mom, dad, you don't get it. All right, you don't know how it is out there. It's not like it was when you were younger, to which, of course, you will nod, um, because it certainly isn't. Uh, I never would have gotten into the college I went to today, uh, as I'm sure many of us feel the same. But, you know, what they do is they say, well, you just, you're clueless. And then, of course, you, you click into that I'm a clueless parent mode. So I need to do this. Um, and then we give in. And then they have these Sunday night meltdowns where they're exhausted and they haven't finished what they needed to finish and they're tantruming. Um, and it's, it wreaks havoc on families, not just the kids themselves. So it sounds like we need help equipping them um, to both deal with less than perfect performance in themselves and to also own that in the school culture where even if it's not imposed on them, it's modeled by all of their peers. Absolutely. And so a lot of, you know, a lot of parents throw up their hands and they say, listen, I'd love for my kid to be more balanced, but until the system changes, I can't change. And I think parents have the right to want their children to succeed and to thrive. Um, my question, and I think a lot of my work now is focusing on, you know, how do we help our kids succeed without sacrificing their wellness and their self-worth? To me, that's really my central right. question right now. That's the critical issue is where these two things come together and where thriving um, in the long run and the short run means defining success differently. Yeah, totally. And let me, you know, I, I really want to make this point um, clear to, uh, to listeners because I think sometimes when you hear, you start to hear people like me, you know, talking about the kids struggling, you think that, that someone like me is saying, well, you know, we need to loosen the reins and let them watch more Netflix or whatever it is. I'm actually not saying that. Um, in fact, you know, the people who study adolescents think that they've got a very high tolerance for stress because they're young. It's just the question of what kind of stress are they experiencing? Um, so I, I'm a you know recovering overachiever, but, but one nonetheless, and, and I want my daughter to do well at whatever she puts her mind to. Um, so it's, it's really important to remember that, that we're not saying they shouldn't succeed. We're just saying at, at what price at success. And, and as you say, what do we mean by that? Exactly. By the way, this is, of course, Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, and I'm talking with Rachel Simmons, author of the New York Times bestsellers, Curse of the Good Girl, Raising Authentic Girls with Courage and Confidence, and Odd Girl Out, The Hidden Culture of Aggression in Girls. And also, quite importantly, and I think excitingly, uh, she's uh, the Girls Research Scholar in Residence at the Hewitt School in New York and the Leadership Development Special at the Wordle Center for Work and Life at Smith College. So coming back to how we can help them redefine success, because um, it sounds like they also, not only is the drive for perfection that is measured, this drive that leads to focusing on performance, in that isn't a focus on growth or development or um, expansion, other things that are important to ultimately perform in impactful ways when we go into the world around us, but aren't measured by numbers. Right. And I think there's nothing wrong with wanting to perform well. The problem, um, researchers agree, is that when that performance goal is the defining thing that motivates you. Mm -hmm. It's like, it's, I mean, it's fine. I, I, I think I do a better job when, you know, I'd probably do a better job talking to you right now. I know I will, knowing that people are listening as oh, opposed to you and I just hanging out on the phone, right? I'm, I'm working hard to perform, but I'm having the conversation because I care about this issue. And I think if you can think about it that way, um, that, that is really what we want our kids to be doing. So nothing wrong with wanting to take those APs, but you really got to kind of be genuinely or at least somewhat <laughs> genuinely interested in that AP chemistry class. I can barely get those words out. It <laughs> gives me hives just to say AP chemistry. No, I mean, I, I, and, I yeah. also, and, and maybe this is a bit of a detour, but just to say that, you know, these kids deserve our empathy. Um, really, just to say like, wow, it, it is so hard to be in high school right now. It, it was hard. I wouldn't go back for all the money in the world. And it was hard when I was in high school. And I think it's only gotten harder. I want to 
try out an idea that, you know, is core to how we think about things here in at Wharton and at the business school world. You can't manage what you don't measure. And so tracking performance, understanding how we're doing, setting goals actually are really important things to learn how to do in a variety of areas. The question is deciding what it is we want to track and what it is we want to measure and does it matter? Absolutely. That's such a great way of putting it. I mean, it really does come down to what do we value and what mm-hmm. are the – and I think, too, as a parent, you know, um, this question of what does it mean to have a good life and what are the values that this family stands for, I think these are questions that every parent should be reflecting on with respect to the way that they relate to their child. Um, you know, because I think here, – here's some interesting research um, that a colleague, Sunia Luthar, of my, um, at the uh, Arizona State um, was a part of – she basically looked with a team at how adolescents became aware of what their parents' values around achievement were. And interestingly, uh, and this holds true with what I've experienced too, you know, a lot of the parents would say to her, you know, we really want our kids to live in balance and achievement is not that important to me. But then when they interviewed the kids, the kids said, no, achievement is like the most important thing for my parents. And what they ultimately have come to see is that it's not what parents say to their children, it's what they do. It's the actions that they take, the choices that they make that reflect their values, and that is what kids internalize. So so when we stay up late working, focus on our performance, celebrate performance to the detriment of our own well-being at times, we're not helping them learn a better lesson. Well, if that's the only thing you're doing, right? So so I think, think, again, and I, I do really believe that close reflection about what do I care about? What do I want this family to stand for? And then thinking about what are the actions that I can take that can align with those values and that can send that message, not through what I say. Um, Because teenagers are, they're listening, but they're rolling their eyes at you half the time anyway. So particularly by the time they get to adolescence, the choices that you make are really important in front of them. The stands that you take are really important. And the choices that we make and honoring the complexity of how do we develop ourselves well and live a life in balance. Absolutely. And I'll give you an example from my own life. Um, I'm a single mom by choice, which means that I had my daughter on my own um, intentionally. And I am an in-demand you know, consultant and speaker. And so I'm constantly juggling the demands on my time with the um, desire to be with my daughter. And there have been many times where I could have taken work Um, but didn't because I've just decided to commit myself to not be away from her more than one night at a time unless there's a really exceptional circumstance. And that is not easy, and that costs me money. It costs me potentially advancing in my career, but it's a decision I make. Now, I'm not saying that to be like, see, everyone, I'm so awesome. I also do plenty of things that I'm not proud of. This is an example (laughs) of – but that's an example of you make a choice, and then you try to live in accordance with that choice. Right. And it both um, reflects the importance that she holds in your life and models a way to balance difficult choices. One of the difficult choices I have to make right now is we're going to take a short break. When we get back, we're going to continue talking with Rachel Simmons here on Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111, about how we navigate this tricky terrain and learn to fail as a way of helping us learn to succeed in the big picture. Give us a call at one eight four four wharton one 942 if you want to join the conversation, and we'll be back in a minute. You're listening to Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Here again is Laura Zarrow. Welcome back to Women at Work and our weekly conversation about how we can help more women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Senior Director of Wharton People Analytics. And today, I have the pleasure of being joined by Rachel Simmons, Leadership Development Specialist at the Wordle Center for Work and Life at Smith College. In our first half hour, we were talking about the relationship between uh, being a good girl, the drive for perfection, the demands that our kids face and often we face, and how we can help our girls, our young women, even ourselves, learn how to create some kind of integration between our ambition, our achievements, and a kind of well-being and impact that often means we're going to do things not so perfectly. Um, if you'd like to join the conversation, you can reach us at one eight four four wharton That's one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. And I'd love to know, how are you struggling with the concept of failure? And how have you learned to incorporate it into your life? And while you ponder that and give us a ring at one eight four four wharton I'm going to welcome Rachel back to Women at Work. Rachel, thank Hi. you again for joining us. Thank you. So, 
I want to jump into the work that you're doing at Smith right now. You know, as we were talking before, it's clear that there's all of this pressure on us to perform, to be perfect, to conform. And yet we're increasingly having an awareness that um, we've got to learn actually how to not perform well and that it doesn't come easily to us. Could you talk to me about how the program started and how you're shaping it? Sure. Well, most of the work that I do starts just by listening to young people, um, I, whether they're my babysitters or I go for a run with someone in my neighborhood or, you know, I just listen. And what I kept hearing was that there was just so much self-criticism around failure um, and there was a lot of anxiety about risk-taking. And I've been hearing that for, for many years, but I think it, it kind of coalesced in this idea of failing well um, when I just made a decision, hey, I'm just going to focus on this issue for a year and see what happens. Um, and it was wonderful because what I was able to do was to think about failure as, or failing well, I should say, as a set of skills that you need. So let's take um, the skill of how do you talk to yourself after you have a setback? And, you know, a lot of people and, frankly, a lot of young women are intensely self-critical. And there, are, there is a somewhat of a gender difference there. We know women tend to be more self-critical. Um, and so I discovered the field of self-compassion. Self-compassion is a, a strongly researched back practice where you practice essentially being kind to yourself in the face of a setback, not forgiving yourself completely like, oh, no big deal, but taking yourself through a situation, being accountable without beating yourself up. So we taught students that. We taught students that skill. Um, then we looked at things like overthinking, overthinking, ruminating, perseverating about a setback. You know, this, we know from research that this peaks in young adulthood and disproportionately affects women. So we worked on that. We offered workshops on how do you manage overthinking. Um, so the idea was that we were teaching failure or, the, or failing well as, as the, a, a constellation of skills that you need to acquire and practice. We've been talking about failure in different contexts in women at work. And um, there's, I feel like I have a growing sense of a spectrum of what, when we're talking about failure, it's not always the same thing. And that there are big, awful failures that we would like to prevent. And there are uh, missteps that happen along the way that are not that devastating, but still hard to cope with. And then there's um, the risks of trying in an iterative process as part of learning. To give you a sense of, you know, one example at one end and one example at the other, um, as many of our listeners know, I come from an art school background where the way that we learned was we made something, we put it on the wall, we all looked at it, we got criticism for it, and if it didn't work, we tried again. And so in one realm of our lives, we learned to try, not succeed, and learn from that. That's very different than being fired, um, ruining a very public project, um, being part of an accident. How do you help girls and young women sort out those differences and navigate how to process them? Um, that's a great question. I mean, I think a lot of it comes down to the beliefs that you hold about failure. And um, this gets into some of the work of Carol Dweck at Stanford, mm -hmm. who writes about motivation in, in the form of mindset. And I'm sure your listeners are, are pretty familiar with it. So I don't want to um, get too deeply into that. But I think a lot of it has to do with your beliefs. So for example, um, if you have the belief, let's take your art school example, that when you receive criticism on a work of art, you just need to try again, try a different strategy, continue to practice. That mentality is going to make failure, as it were, a lot less, feel a lot less like a failure mm -hmm. and more like a point in a process. And so I think that's part of what we're trying to do with students is to rebrand failure a little bit as not an endpoint, but part of a journey that you might be on. But it does require getting them to understand that practice and effort, applying effort over time really, really makes a difference. Um, and, and it is somewhat different than, of course, than the big, big failures, right? I mean, mm -hmm. we're talking about those everyday experiences. You've got to be minus on a paper. Go to office hours for the professor and, and talk about what to do. Don't go to your room, pull the blanket over your head, and watch Netflix for 72 hours. I mean, you can do that, but like after your homework done. Right, and there are some key differences here. And to refer to some people that are doing important work in this area, you know, Angela Duckworth's work on grit, um, which other people think of as a resiliency, but there's a critical component of there's the ambition of wanting to learn to master something and do it well. 
and the willingness to keep trying even when it's not going well. So like you said, seeing those types of failures as part of a journey, tapping into a belief that you can grow, you can learn if you put the effort in, which is Carol Dweck's work. Right. And and I do want to kind of add a, a somewhat of a footnote um, to what we're talking about, which I think increasingly is, is necessary, um, which is that there are some limitations to Duckworth and Dweck in the sense that you know, grit and mindset are maybe place a little bit too much control in the hands of the individual Mm -hmm. when sometimes the individual is in a context that can be quite oppressive. So if we're talking about, for example, on a college campus, marginalized students or Mm -hmm. um, students like first generation college students, they may be walking into an environment that makes persistence and grit and kind of the willingness to keep practicing really difficult. And so I think it's, it's, always important for us to remember when we're talking to young people that it's not always going to just be up to them, that they're always Mm -hmm. functioning in a climate that's going to have an effect on how motivated or comfortable they're going to be in the face of a setback. Which raises the interesting challenge. Um, And Adam Grant was talking about this at our recent conference, which is that if we only focus on um, a growth mindset, which is that we can change ourselves. Um, There are times when what needs to change is the world around us. Absolutely. And I think this is particularly true when we're talking about women who experience sexism. I mean, uh, we've obviously had a great deal of news lately about the environment (laughs) in Silicon Valley. Um, And in particular, of course, the story of Uber. Um, The story of Uber is is a really clear uh, message that sometimes persistence is pointless if you're going to experience harassment or ceilings on your potential because of of your gender. Now, this is, I I can't resist. Um, It's an opening. I want to ask you about a blog that you wrote in February, How to Raise a Daughter in the Trump Era. Yes. Um, I I have to say, I I read it, and I think I was cheering and applauding in the privacy of my own office. Like, I, I wished 100 people had read it with me. Did you get positive feedback on this? Somewhat. I mean, you know, I think anytime you wade into writing about Trump, you expose yourself to online trolling. Um, so, I mean, I would say I did get some positive response. And then, of course, I got a wave of um, of antagonism from Trump supporters. But the what I said in this blog was that maybe we've been a little bit too complacent as parents of girls, thinking that, hey, girl power, sky's the limit. There's a lot of great statistics about the success of girls, whether it's their grades or college enrollment or even their wages as they leave college. Like, wow, they're doing so great. Um, I think Trump's election and the fact that clearly an overt sexist was elected into office just by mm-hmm. his own words that are on the record, um, really, I think, kind of put, gave a lot of people pause to say, wait a second, maybe we haven't come as far when it comes to gender equality as we think. Maybe our, our, our polity, as it was, as it were, doesn't have, uh, you know, as, as egalitarian a view of gender as we thought. And so my, my point was, hey, listen, we got to get girls more politicized. And we as parents have to raise them to deal with sexism. Um, and I compared this to the experience of African-American families in the United States, mm-hmm. who research shows are, tend to raise their children with a strong, uh, what's called a critical race consciousness. Basically, just to be aware that when you are, are, are hurt or undermined, that you are still a person of worth, but that you are living in a racist culture. And, and it may be that girls need to hear some of that message as well. And that was what I thought was so stunning in this. And um, for our listeners out there, if you're curious about it, it's on Rachel's blog. Um, and it's not, well, it is clearly anchored in what. Are, is being revealed about our culture right now. It, the blog, it's not about politics. It's about the reality of how do you hold on to your sense of self in a world that's telling you you're worthless. That's right. And, and I think that this is why, this is the important companion to some of the language around you can do it and it's all up to you and your effort and you've got to keep practicing the reality is this is not a, a perfect or a by any means easy culture for a girl to grow up in, particularly a girl who wants to express herself and take up space. It's also in the blog, part of what you talked about was bigger than expression and taking up space, which are all by, on their own merits essential. Yeah. I mean, you I, also talked about the the ambition to lead. For sure. And I think, you know, one of the things we know is that, that at a very young age, girls are able to say whether or not they want to lead. 
And so this gets back to some of what we talked about earlier, which is that the experiences that, that girls have as children have a really profound impact on who they become as women. And so if they experience their voices as being um, you know, punished or stigmatized in any way, that can immediately affect their sense of whether or not they should or could be a leader. You shared a few stories and a few examples in here that I thought were really important, which is why I'm bringing them up now, um, even though I do hope people will go and read it, but that the ambivalence that girls have about power and its relationship to sexism. That's right. I mean, I think we, I call it the yes, but mentality. I mean, yes, we tell girls be strong, but don't be too strong because Mm -hmm. then people might think that, you know, you're too much or, you know, yes, be um, self-promotional and go after what you want, but don't be conceited. And so I think this, that girls often express through their ambivalence about leading, they're expressing the ambivalence that remains in the culture about how powerful uh, we want girls to be. By the way, once again, this is Women at Work on Business Radio on Sirius XM 111. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow. I'm talking with the extraordinary Rachel Simmons, author of Odd Girl Out and Leadership Development Special at the Wordle Center for Work. Am I saying Wordle right, by the way, You Rachel? are. Okay. so. <laughs> okay, good. At Smith College, quite importantly. Um, and if you want to learn a little more about it, I also have to give a shout out to Jessica Bennett, who wrote a great article about it in the New York Times. Um, but if you have a question for us today about what we're discussing, please give us a call at one 844 Wharton. That's 1-844-942-7866. So I also want to come back to another aspect of leadership that you talked about in this blog, which is um, how our conditioning affects our ability to be brave and courageous. And that brave isn't a word that we, uh, uh, I don't hear a lot of people encouraging their girls to be brave. I think we don't hear a lot of people doing that because I think a lot of parents feel uncomfortable about it. I think um, I remember some time ago when I, we were trying to title The Curse of the Good Girl, and this was back in 2009, so it was a while ago. But I remember um, people at the publishing house saying, I wanted to include the word leadership in the title of my book. And they said, no, no, don't do that because I don't, we don't think that parents will buy it because we don't think all parents want their kids to be leaders. And in fact, we've seen research that, that shows that, for example, parents are much more likely to encourage their sons to consider running for elected office than, to, than their daughters, um, more likely to actively discourage political ambition in their daughters than their sons. And, and obviously leadership extends to far more than running for elected office, but I think it's a telling example. Yes, and that we also know that our um, discomfort, not just men's, but women's discomfort with women as leaders is one of the things that we think was responsible for the outcome of the election. Yes, we do. And, and I mean, we know that white women, um, you know, voted in droves against Hillary Clinton. And so I think that that is also another sign of that ambivalence. Yet we have women like Christian Gillibrand from New York, who uh, had a very different set of models growing up. And you talk in this about the power that that can have. It's true. I mean, I think having a woman in your life, um, and I think in Kristen's case, in Senator Gillibrand's case, it was a, a grandmother who really strongly encouraged her to run for office. I mean, having a woman in your life who mentors you, um, who models something for you, who loves you as you are, <laughs> even if you even if you do, you know, even if you are too loud, or even if you do sort of transgress some of those good girl rules. I mean, I think that's everything. And I think it kind of goes back to another point we made earlier, which is that relationships are so critical for all of us, certainly, but but we know for girls, they're really important to their psychological health. And so any situation like the one we have right now, where we know girls' connections to others are being frayed, is a cause for alarm. Um, Because those connections aren't just with their friends, but they might be with the kinds of mentors um, that you point out are so key to girls feeling that permission to try uh, and lead. So one of the things that you talked about with tremendous eloquence and sensitivity is relational aggression and the kind of almost subtle under the radar way that girls learn to judge and manipulate around each other. And as I was reading it, I couldn't help but I've seen that in the workplace. Oh yes. <laughs> <laughs> I I've seen it too. 
Um, I, yeah, look, I mean, I think we sometimes falsely separate adult women from girls. And maybe we do it because, you know, we want to imagine that we're so grown up or whatever. But I'm, I'm confessing, sure. I'm not. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I definitely feel like I've got a lot of inner girl going on. And I know, you know, women all over the country say to me, I, look, I read your book about girls, but it was really about me. So um, we do see a lot of a lot of this behavior, and I I think that relational aggression, hurting someone's relationships, whether it's in the workplace or or elsewhere, you know, harming their social status through things like gossip and rumors, you know, kind of threatening psychologically to take away your relationship from them or to harm their relationships, all of these behaviors start at a very young age, actually at the age of about three. Oh my God! Yeah, and so, but one of the reasons they happen is because we don't give girls as much permission to speak directly to each other. So, if you look at how boys play um, when they're young, they are very comfortable kind of hashing out conflicts on the playground, right? If there's mm-hmm. a problem, they say, okay, what's the rule? What, this is the rule. No, this is the rule. Well, there's only one rule, and so once they figure that out, they keep playing. When you watch girls on the playground, uh, they often get more about like the relationship, like they're fighting about, well, you were wrong, no, you were wrong, mm-hmm. and then they walk away from each other. Now, we think that that happens because there's just not as much permission for girls to not be nice. And that there's not, so, so what we see is that either a girl is like really nice and sweet, we can say the same about women, or she's a total bitch, basically, <laughs> right? And right. There's, not, there's not like a, an identity that we have in our culture, a positive identity for an assertive girl. Not true for boys. And so it also, I'm wondering if there's, I'm seeing a connection, and hopefully you'll help me navigate where there is and, and what its form really looks like, between um, how those social dances play out along with um, conformity or failure, and then how we carry that forward into the workplace when part of leading is actually being public and failing in front of lots of other people. Right. I mean, and are you thinking, Laura, about about relational aggression or about perfectionism in particular? Well, I'm thinking about how through relational aggression, girls seize on and exploit others' imperfections. Yeah, I, I mean, I, oh, that's, I think, I think that's, that's certainly true. Um, I think that's also one of the ways that they damage each other's social status. Mm-hmm. Um, and look, I think it's, it's sort of a, a double-edged sword because on the one hand, sure, girls have this power to hurt each other. On the other hand, I feel like I've seen women, and I wonder if your listeners have too, I've seen women use that kind of social sophistication, that ability to manipulate, be a really powerful um, vehicle for advancement in the workplace. That's true. And, and building coalitions and connections in a world that's inhospitable. Yes. And, and I would also even say, take it a step further, which is that I, I feel like I've seen women um, sort of use that power to create like a, almost like a fake friendship um, yes. to sort of cross the line and go from being colleagues to being super close as a way to accomplish a, a particular task, right, in sort of an yes. instrumental way. And I've always felt a, a degree of discomfort about that. I have too because there's, um, there's both the insecurity about a relationship that becomes close and seems convenient and inauthentic as well as there's, uh, I think, a desire – to to deeply connect when it's authentic. Absolutely. The other thing I would add is that I think part of the one of the kind of byproducts of what we're talking about is that competition becomes so complicated for women that that when you're supposed to be both perfect and nice to each other all the time, it's really difficult to compete with each other openly. So I think competition then can become loaded, personalized, underhanded, not spoken, and and that can be so toxic to relationships. And then it it, it becomes um, almost hyperbolic in how it plays out on the public stage when we are talking about things like leadership and politics. Uh, Absolutely. And I think that gets to one of the reasons why women don't support each other as much as they might. Is because they're afraid of having conflict with each other or exposing the weaknesses? Um, Yeah, and they're not willing to name some of the less savory feelings that they might be experiencing, whether it be jealousy, resentment, competition. You know, I always tell my students of any age that the, the, the longer you don't name what's going on in a relationship, the more the relationship becomes poisoned. Absolutely. Do you find that there's a difference, and you noted some of this in the blog, between cultures and the comfort with girls from different backgrounds in um, addressing conflict, whether it's productive or improductive? Well, I think going back to um, within the United States, African-American women and girls 
tend to be more comfortable with assertiveness and tend to grow up in communities where everyone around them is comfortable with it too. So they're not stigmatized for it. Um, having said that, I think that those same girls and women go into predominantly white or, or sort of non-black environments and then are stigmatized for that very assertiveness. So it's not, yes. not an easy situation. Um, but I would say this this challenge that women have asserting themselves is fairly worldwide. My books are always first translated into Asian languages. Um, Interesting. I think it's in the in in Asian culture and Eastern culture where we see a lot of um, repression around women's voices. And these things really resonate. By the way, we have Mary, who's calling in from Pittsburgh. Mary, thanks so much for calling in. What's on your mind today? Yes, thank you for taking my call. I have a daughter who just graduated high school and has the situation you've been explaining, had five AP classes. She did not get into the college of her choice in December. She found that out and got mono in January and then this kind of shut down the rest of the senior year, and now it's going to a college she really didn't prefer. And I was wondering if you have suggestions on how to best support her because she really hasn't come out of this funk that she's in. Oh, well, I'm, Mary, I'm so sorry. And I know it is, it's such an impossible uh, situation for, for not just your daughter but for, for families as well where they think that their worthiness rides on whether or not they get that yes in December or April, uh, whenever it is. So I, I, I really feel for you and for her. I think that what it, might, it probably feels like you're screaming into the wind, um, and she may think you just are clueless and don't know what you're talking about, but you have to keep reminding her that she has applied to college in a really toxic culture, and I think it's important to keep calling out the toxicity of what she's just experienced, that to somehow imply that all of this work that she's done, and I'm sure she broke her back doing it, amounts to something that falls short of what she wants, like that's a really warped and, and kind of toxic wrong system. So call out the system and keep reminding her that she will be happy wherever she goes because of who she is, because of the things about her that you love and cherish and are proud of, not because of what number was on a piece of paper. Now, again, she's going to roll her eyes. She's going to tell you you're clueless. You have to keep saying it. I mean, that's the drudgery of parenting. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and I promise you that she's still listening, but she is, she, I'm sure she's despondent on some level because that's mm -hmm. what the culture has set her up to be. And it's so hard. So I think, you know, your willingness to kind of stick with her and keep letting her know that it's going to be okay. And that once she gets to college, she, she really will, I'm sure have a sense of how ridiculous it all was. <laughs> so Mary, okay, well, I hope thank that, you so much. I hope that's mm -hmm. helpful, and wish her luck from all of us here at Women at Work because okay, she's clearly talented. Oh, I'm so glad and she's clearly talented and capable. So there's much in store for her. Um, so Rachel, before we wind up, um, I just want to check if people want to learn more about what you're doing, or they want to know about your next book that's coming out. Um, what should they look for, and where should they go? Sure. Um, well, my next book is called Enough As She Is. Um, very. It's definitely about people like Mary's daughter, um, and it's called How to Help Girls Move Beyond Impossible Standards of Success to Live Healthy, Happy, and Fulfilling Lives. And it is now available for pre-order um, online. And um, my website, rachelsimmons.com, but I also invite everyone to visit us at smith.edu. Rachel, I can't thank you enough for talking with us today. Oh, such a pleasure. Um, and so to all of you who are listening, thank you as well. If you have questions about something you heard on today's show, you can email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. And you can follow us our, follow our show on Twitter at BizRadio111. I'd also like to give a shout out to the young woman who is perhaps the shining example for our generation of what's possible when you stand up for what you believe and have the courage to defy cultural norms in order to hold true to your deepest hell values and greatest ambitions. Malala Yousafzai graduated from high school this week, and I can't think of another young woman who worked harder to make that happen, not just for herself, but for girls around the world. So, Malala, on behalf of all of us at Here Women at Work, congratulations. We're forever grateful for your courage, your foresight, and we can't wait to see what your next chapter holds. Closer to home, thanks again to my amazing guest, Rachel Simmons, our producer, Patty Hall, Tatiana, who's our engineer, Ali Freed, our researcher. I'm Laura Zarrow, and you have been listening to Women at Work on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, here on Sirius XM 111. Thanks so much, everyone.